Every American is acutely aware of the issues surrounding our health care system. We know miracles can happen, but we find ourselves bombarded by conflicting information and are uncertain of what and whom we can trust. We have some of the best medical care in the world for those who can afford it. Incredible new drugs that change people's lives but can be very costly. Many of the best doctors the world has ever seen, but not all are perfect. That's why Dr. Steve Feldman created the show, Getting Better Health Care, to help walk us through the labyrinth, helping us understand how to take better care of ourselves and to better understand the challenges, issues, controversies, and complexities of our health care system as it exists and as it could be. For better health care and a better health care system, listen to the doctor. Now, here's Steve. Welcome to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Feldman, founder of the DrScore.com physician rating website. One of the great things about our healthcare system is access to medications that can change patients' lives. In earlier eras, these medications might have been viewed as magical or certainly miraculous. In today's program, we take on the topic of how these new medicines come to market. What research is done to get a medication approved by the FDA? Now, there are many types of medications, over-the-counter drugs, generics, devices. On today's program, we're going to explore how new prescription drugs come to market. These are the kinds of drugs that have benefits, but they also have risks. They're not the kinds of things that patients have access to on their own. These are the drugs that you need the advice of a doctor to use. To speak to us about this, we have Dr. B. Abrams. Dr. Abrams has a Ph.D. in developmental biology, and she's worked doing clinical research in the pharmaceutical industry for 30 years. Dr. Abrams, thank you so much for being on the show today. Our listeners want to know how do new drugs come to market? What, what's involved with that? Well, one thing that I think should be pointed out is that it's a team effort and that um, the pharmaceutical industry will develop the new drugs, uh, but very often works together with academics to look for new drug entities to understand what types of drugs should be or could be developed for specific uh, diseases. And um, the drug companies, when they're developing drugs, are answerable to many customers. They certainly are profit-making institutions, so they are responsible to their investors. It's a heavily regulated industry, so we are constantly answering to regulatory agencies such as the EMEA in Europe or the FDA here in the United States. Uh, We also have new pressures coming in uh, from health economics organizations. These would be the uh, third payers, and um, very often in Europe especially, they have uh, agencies like NICE in the U.K. that uh, set prices. So we also have to answer to these organizations. Finally, and, and actually most importantly, we're responsible to the patients who are going to take our drugs and to the physicians who prescribe them. So the drug companies have to develop drugs, um, keeping in mind all of these uh, customers. Uh, And then to develop a drug, you have to identify something that you think would work based on its mechanism of action uh, and would address a 
defect in a person who has a specific disease. Yeah, uh, finding a good target. I, I, you've been in research with companies for a long time. Who who are some of the the people involved in the research? Is it is it the, the scientist who makes the drug and then some clinician who puts it into people? Is that all there is to it? Uh, well, if you want to get down to basics, yeah. Um, the new drug entity, as I mentioned, uh, can come from uh, research in academics. Um, some drug companies actually will license drugs in from smaller companies and then develop uh, develop these. But basically, there is a lot of basic research that goes into trying to understand what drug might work for a specific disease. And then uh, the drug, once it's identified, you have to look at how can you study it. So there's a lot of work by molecular biologists, uh, pathophysiologists, pharmacologists, trying to understand in animal models first uh, and also in uh, in vitro situations what the drug might be doing. And all this work has to go on well before it's ever put into any kind of human studies. There's also a lot of work done both in vitro and in animal studies prior to getting it into man to determine its overall safety profile. So by in vitro, you're meaning the test tube work? The test tube work, yeah. Mm-hmm. And what's really becoming very, um, I guess you could say, in vogue now uh, is to try and develop a lot of molecular mechanisms to look at early development, early safety signals, for example, um, and uh, there's some early, a lot of testing work now in vitro to understand how a drug is metabolized and how this might interfere with other drugs, for example, that might be taken by the same patient. And this is all done in the test tube. So there's a lot of background work that's going on to understand what the drug is doing in the disease state, what its um, meta- metabol- meta- metabolism is like. Um, how it might interfere with the patient, and also to look at a lot of safety issues uh, and describe these. Okay, so so um, at a very concrete level, you know the economy is not good. Some of our listeners might be interested in a, in a job in the drug development industry. What are some of the functions uh, or the things that people are doing within the research team? Within the research team, uh, there's a lot of things going on. Uh, certainly, there are people who are they're veterinarians at work um, in the you know the toxicologists who are working on animal toxicology. Um, there are pharmacologists, there are molecular biologists. There are people who do uh, uh, molecular uh, modeling and a lot of high mass statistics. These are all in the early um, stages. Also, very important at this point, we're trying a drug. You just can't pop it into a person or an animal. You have to put it in some kind of a dosage form, um, so into some kind of solution or yeah. a cream if you're putting it on topically or a pill. And trying to take one chemical entity, which is the drug, and make it into something that will get into the body and then disperse and get to the target organs appropriately, very difficult. And this takes people like pharmacists, um, biopharmaceutical experts, uh, formulators. So these are all types of people that uh, would be necessary. And then once you get this all done in the small scale, uh, these people have to learn how to manufacture it. And there's a big difference between working on the small scale 
and then taking the drug substance in its new formulation and scaling it up so that we can get it into the clinic. I imagine that once you're in the clinic, then you have a whole team of people who are involved in managing the studies, entering in data. I've been involved in some studies where there's uh, programs for entering the data, so that there must be some programmers behind the scenes somewhere. Oh, absolutely. The the actual drug development, it, it, it's amazing if you stop to think about what has to go on. Depending on, on the disease, the numbers of patients uh, can be very quite variable. And there are two factors that determine the numbers of patients uh, that we enter into a clinical program. One is... Um, trying to understand the variability of the disease. If there's a lot of variability in patients, we need a lot, of pa- a lot of patients in our studies to understand what the real effect of the drug is. The other issue is safety. Um, in smaller populations, you might be able to find major, major uh, safety effects. But to get a better handle on some of the safety profile of a drug, you, need, you usually get up into 1,000 or more patients. Now, to recruit that many patients, we generally have to go all over the world. We can't just work in the United States, although uh, large programs do go on here. So we have to, and as I mentioned earlier, we're highly regulated. So everything we do, we are answerable to a regulatory authority. And if we are going to run clinical trials um, all over the world, we have to have people who are expert in the regulations in every country we're in. So it's a major effort to get a drug into the clinic um, and to meet all the regulatory requirements. Um, we also have to, as I mentioned, understand how many patients we are going to study and how we need to study them. Because whatever we do in our clinical trials is going to be the basis of how we tell the public to use our drug in the drug label. So. Uh, And whatever in the large clinical trials, whatever formulation we use, this is the formulation that will have to go to market. So there's a lot of work that has to be done to get something into the clinic. We also are collecting massive amounts of information, both on the efficacy of the drug, the safety of the drug, how the patients perceive the drug, very often on how the drug will affect not just the disease uh, process, but the patient's quality of life. And to do this and collect this massive amount of data, we need statisticians, we need programmers, and we need people who can manage these massive databases. Um, the pharmaceutical industry, the large companies, are just amazing when you think about the amount of information they have to process. Yeah, I heard that they used to, for a new drug, take a, a tractor trailer or two of paperwork to the FDA. Yeah, that, 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 used, that was the uh, general um, amounts, even for relatively small um, new drug applications. Uh, now these uh, drug, new drug applications are uh, being filed a lot electronically, so of course the truckloads aren't necessary all the time. But the, but, the massive uh, data is probably even bigger than it used to be. Yeah, and uh, it, it's it always just amazed me, uh, the database management. And the other thing we need are people who can translate from what we are asking of the drug and translate this into very specific terms. So we're asking the questions about what the drug is doing correctly and then entering it into case report forms 
that actually collect the information we need. Um, one of the most difficult things, it may sound trivial, but one of the most difficult things uh, in clinical trials is to ask the correct question on the case report form, which collects the information, so that when we get all these, this information back, we can get it into a database, and then we can analyze it. That's, uh, I think that's one of the biggest difficulties I've come across in clinical research, and it sounds very simple, but it's most, I think without a good understanding of what's happened, you're never going to be able to analyze the data and get an answer of what your drug is really doing. You're listening to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Feldman. We're speaking today with Dr. B. Abrams about the research that, that, that goes behind a new drug coming to market. B., um, let's start talking about what happens after you've identified this chemical, you've put it into a, a formulation that can be uh, given to humans, you've done some basic testing on it so that you think it's safe to actually give to a person. Just as a general overview, what are the, the steps um, or what are called phases of clinical development? Uh, well, there, there's some classic terms that have been used for a long time that, where they divided into phases. Phase one was the first uh, experiences in man, uh, very small trials, trying to understand overall safety, overall effects, and these are done very small trials, and, and also trying to understand um, dose effect. Uh, you can't just give, throw a drug at a person. You have to understand if you give a little bit, it's going to have one effect. If you give a lot, it could have a completely different effect. And, of course, safety is very uh, much determined by how much of a drug a person gets. So you have to find the right amount of drug to give that balances safety and efficacy. So these early studies in small groups of people look at trying to achieve a dose that will give the maximum benefit with the least, uh, at least gross side effects. So um, that that goes on in phase one. And then phase two, there's more refinement of the dose regimen. If you don't have the dose regimen correct, in other words, the amount of drug you have to give to a person, whether you have to give it twice a day, once a day, if you don't have that well understood when you go into clinical trials, you could take a drug that may be very, very effective if you had given it correctly and ruin the whole thing mm-hmm. by making, maybe giving too much so it's not safe or giving too little so you don't get efficacy. So these phase one and phase two trials are very, very important to understand how you're going to treat large numbers of patients in the next group of the trials called phase three. And phase three trials are the trials that are used for registration, and they uh, are used, those define the, the, the safety and the efficacy of the drug. In the United States, we have to do these trials with our active drug versus the placebo, or I guess people call sugar tablets, um, drugs that have, these are placebos, um, are used to define the actual um, activity of the drug, because the placebo is just a background noise you know, what would happen if the patient didn't do anything, and then we give the drug, and we know exactly then what the drug should be doing. Uh, so you give people drug, or you give them something they think may be the drug, and then you look to see at the difference in the two groups to see if the drug really does something. Right, and that gives you, that gives you a, an absolute efficacy of the drug. Now, in Europe, 
Um, and I think more you'll see this more now in the United States, too, because of concerns for cost of drugs. Um, you have to also do trials against uh, other drugs that are used to treat the disease. For example, um, you know, you would compare, if you're looking at high blood pressure, to antihypertensive drugs. Um, and then you get an idea of the relative effectiveness uh, of your drug, you know, it's relative to something that's already considered safe and effective and on the market. And that can, also, that can often be used in Europe to determine price and whether, whether you're worth, you know, having a uh, payer put money into when the patient wants it. Is there any advantage to doing the, the FDA's placebo-controlled approach as opposed to just comparing against existing products? Uh, there's a big, big difference in the types of results you get because in uh, doing the placebo-controlled trials, as I mentioned, you're looking at absolute effects. Um, when you're doing drugs, uh, two comparatives, two active comparative drugs, uh, in these trials, you're not really sure what the real activity of the drug is because you could have a lot of bias in there because everybody knows whatever they're taking is supposed to be active. So there's a lot of bias in those drugs, and you really don't get a true understanding of the effect of a drug hmm. in a uh, comparative uh, active comparative trial. Like a lot of things in life, there's advantages and disadvantages and no one right way that's necessarily better than the other. And absolutely. Okay. And there's some diseases where you just cannot do um, placebo-controlled trials because it would not be ethical. Um, you know, one thing I need to also mention is I, I was mentioning all the different groups that we are responsible to, um, our customers, if you will. And one of the major drivers of how we get do develop the drug is considerations of ethics. And this is incredibly difficult area uh, because we're often treating patients who are in desperate need of drugs, but we need to make sure that when we're testing them, we're doing what is really best for them. And um, it's a very, very difficult issue. I, I don't know if people are, have ever read the, the uh, book Constant Gardener or seen the movie, but one of the biggest, the point in that fictional book was uh, they were doing clinical trials in Africa and can you uh, really get people to willingly and submit to doing drug trials with unknown drugs when they have no option. Poor, poor people in Africa may have no option to get medical care if they don't enroll in the trial. So are you really coercing them? And that was one of the one of the storylines in this fictional uh, book, Constant Gardener. Hmm. It was very I, interesting. I guess in theory you could offer them all medical care whether they participate or not, but then uh, yeah, that would it's, be a little more costly. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very 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 difficult area, and there are all there's a whole field you you were asking about jobs people get medical ethicists now. That's a very big. Yeah, that uh, sounds like a great job. Yeah. So. All right, so the phases of clinical development, we have the very early phase one and phase two work that map out the efficacy and something about the dosage, and then we take it into humans in larger numbers with these large phase three studies that really pin down against a placebo in the United States, maybe against an active drug in, the, in another country, how well the drug works. And then the drug comes to market, so you're done with research. Not at all. Um, first of all, very often your approval in a drug is contingent on continuing study. Um, and 
what we really need to get into as we, after the drug is marketed, is to understand the safety profile. Um, no matter how, how many studies we, how many, excuse me, patients we put into our clinical trials in phase three, even if it's a couple thousand, and, and, and believe me, there are clinical trials going in with a couple thousand people in them. You just never under, can never define all of the side effects, the bad effects of a drug. And you don't understand these until the drug really has been on the market for quite a while. Um, one of the things uh, that I noticed in drug development over the years was the drug companies who were trying to get their money back uh, before patents expired. This was a very critical thing for them. Um, so they had to launch their drugs, new drugs, and get a quick uptake in the marketplace. One of the problems with this is if you throw a new drug entity, no matter how well it's been studied, into large numbers of people in the marketplace, you're going to start describing new adverse events from the drug as the numbers of patients exposed increase. So there's a lot of things that have to be done to define safety once the drug is on the market. It cannot be done before the drug is approved. You just can't get that enough people. There's another whole specialty, um, again, if you're looking for jobs, called pharmacoepidemiology, which uh, specifically looks at methods to understand the safety of a drug um, in large patient populations once the drug is on the market. So, you know, um, it's, it's a, as fabulous as the science is for these phase three studies comparing the drug to placebo and you, you get it a really good sense of the absolute efficacy of the drug. Um, and I'm sure there's science to pharmacoepidemiology. I get the sense that it's a little like reading tea leaves because when you're giving the drug to large numbers of people and there is no placebo group, then you have nothing to compare to. Yes, and, and that's where the statisticians come in because a lot of pharmacoepidemiology is based on probabilities and very sophisticated uh, statistics. And... The, the designs, um, you're not just kind of throwing, you know, um, looking, just bringing in a lot of patients and trying to look at them um, to see what's happening. There's specific study designs uh, to pharmacoepidemiology studies so that you can analyze them statistically and try and get good probabilities. The gold standard then, once you really suspect something, is to try and get it back into a controlled clinical trial. Um, you know, there's, there's two kinds of uh, pharmacoepidemiology that go on, um, some of it even pre-marketing, some post-marketing. But the first are these spontaneous reports. When a drug is marketed, uh, there are mechanisms. If, for example, a patient comes to the doctor and said, you know, I took this drug and now I have massive headaches, the doctor can report this to the FDA. They can report it to the drug company who is selling this new drug. And these reports are then put into databases that are, uh, carefully tabulated and reviewed constantly uh, to look for signals. And uh, this is a very, very uncontrolled method of collecting information, uh, very difficult, but can indicate signals out there in the marketplace. When signals are detected, then they can be brought back into more um, well-structured clinical pharmacoepidemiology trials. Uh, to look then statistically at what is going on. Uh, again, it, it, some of these adverse events are so rare 
that trying to find them in a clinical trial that's controlled would be almost impossible. So uh, yeah, I know. it's a very, diff- very, very difficult area. Yeah, one of the drugs that I'd worked with um, for my patients with psoriasis was, it was called Raptiva, but it was recalled um, and taken off the market after there were three or four confirmed cases of a rare fatal brain infection. Now, out of the, I don't know, tens of thousands of people treated four events, was it due to drug? Yeah, probably, but who knows for sure. But you'd never see that in the clinical trials, even with the 1,000 or 2,000 patients they would have treated. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it was a terrible thing for these patients who had the uh, brain issue. Um, obviously, you can't belittle that, but there it was no way to really know that this was going to happen, as you mentioned. Um yeah. I guess with the Vioxx is another example of, but there I, I imagine they had really large numbers of people t- to compare relatively more common events like heart disease. And, and again, here you get into a tremendously difficult area because people who are taking Vioxx, for example, and, and have our, you know have arthritis are very often very sick. They have heart conditions. So how do you separate out um, whether the, th- the event was actually caused by the drug or just caused by background, um, the background diseases? Diabetics have the same issue. Di- yeah. Diabetics have a lot of background issues going on um, besides blood sugar control. So you control their blood sugar, but they already have hypertension, for example. So how much of a side effect... Uh, how much of, a, of an effect that has to do with cardiovascular it has to do with the drug versus the patient's own background disease state. And then with, with something like Vioxx and pharmacoepidemiologic studies, I guess they're comparing it to arthritis patients treated with something else. And if that something else is something that, like aspirin, might reduce heart attack risk, then it might look like Vioxx was making things worse without when it wasn't changing things, when it wasn't improving things the way another therapy was. That's, that's why the design of clinical trials is so critical, and uh, it's not an easy matter of just saying, here, you take this drug, you take that drug. Um, you've got to make sure that there is no bias in your patient populations or there is um, a bias. If there is something strange in the patient populations, that, it's, that the patient's are equally allocated to whatever two drugs or drug and placebo you're studying. So drug design is uh, drug study design is a real art uh, and science. <laughs> Dr. Abrams, um, I want to thank you for giving us such a, an excellent overview of the different phases of clinical trials. I'm hoping you would be willing to um, come back on the program and talk about the nitty-gritty of, of doing these clinical trials. I would love to do that. This is something I've worked in all my life, and I love it. (laughs) That's super. Um, Do you have any final comments um, you want to give our listeners about um, clinical trials in general? Uh, Just just to reinforce the uh, concept that the ultimate goal of clinical research is to provide scientifically sound evidence that a new product will provide an appropriate balance of benefit to risk when it's used as intended in the intended uh, indication, and that drug development is is just very complex and relies on the expertise of a lot of different specialties, all the way from the molecular biologist to the person 
who knows how to scale up and manufacture a drug in huge, huge vats, just unbelievable size sizes. Uh, so it's it's a complex and very team oriented actually um, procedure, and uh, we're ans- drug research is answerable to a lot of different um, stakeholders or customers, highly regulated and also highly concerned with the ethics of what they're doing. So these miracles don't come about by luck. It, there's a lot of hard work a going on. A lot of hard work, yeah. yes. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Dr. Abrams is incredibly enlightening on the process by which new drugs come to market. Rigorous testing is done. Perhaps thousands of patients are enrolled in trials. Mountains of data are generated. The process of doing these studies and collecting this data is organized, uh, collected, analyzed by a small army of people. On a future program, I'll have Dr. Abrams back to discuss the nitty-gritty of how all this is done. In the meantime, you now have a better idea of the basis on which we understand the drugs that we use, how we know they're safe, and the limitations of our knowledge of their safety. You have a better understanding of the information that our doctors have access to on which to make decisions about what drug is best to prescribe for us. Well, hopefully, between now and our next show, you won't need any of those new drugs uh, because I wish you the very best of health. Our theme music is by the incomparable Michael Zioli. Please join us again. Thanks for listening to the show today. Remember to go to DrScore.com to get and give feedback about your doctor and to read others' recommendations about doctors in your area. It's a way to choose your path to healthcare empowerment. That's D-R-S-C-O-R-E.com, DrScore.com. And we'll see you next week right here on Getting Better Healthcare.